welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning and welcome along to Gateway. Thrilled that you're with us. Over these last uh, couple of months, we've been doing a series that we've called The People of God Transformed. Last Sunday, um, I embarked on the whole idea of the role of spiritual disciplines, the classic spiritual disciplines in the process of transformation. And what I'd like to do is wrap that up and wrap up our study today by just going a little further into that whole area of what role do the spiritual disciplines play in the process of transformation? Over the centuries of Christian thought and tradition, people who have, like you and I, pursued the objective of becoming Christ-like have concluded that we actually can become like Christ by learning and seeking to center our lives around the style of his life, the things that he did, the life that he chose for himself. I'm sure some of you will have read writers who have talked about the old idea of walking in the dust of your rabbi. By that, they were referring to the ancient students of the famous Jewish rabbis, and they would follow them literally as they itinerated throughout the countryside, so that by the end of the day, they were literally covered in the dust of their rabbi. And that became kind of a synonym for the goal that was ultimately to be conformed to their rabbi so that if all went well, they could do the things that their rabbi did. They could be the kind of person their rabbi was. So we're in a way talking about being covered in the dust of Jesus by following in the kind of lifestyle that he lived. And the spiritual disciplines are those activities that traditionally and historically have been understood to be the kinds of activities that Jesus engaged in and centered his life around. Those time-tested activities of body and mind that are consciously undertaken to put our hearts in a place, in an environment where change can actually occur. Now, I mentioned last week that the mechanics of these spiritual disciplines, whether it's prayer or fasting or or solitude or silence or whatever these disciplines are, the mechanics of the spiritual disciplines don't and can't produce change in the same way that a farmer cannot produce the growth of a seed. But what the farmer can do is put the seed in an environment that encourages and allows growth to happen, and that's exactly what the spiritual disciplines do. They don't change, they can't produce change, but they provide an environment in which God can change us. Now, I spoke incredibly uh, generally about the disciplines last week, and actually, I'm going to end up pretty much talking generally about them again this week without unpacking any of them in particular detail. What I would suggest is if this subject interests you, that you should pursue some reading, and there are some very, very good books on the spiritual disciplines out now. For a long period of time, actually, in Christian history, there, weren't, there wasn't much in the way of work on the disciplines, but Richard Foster's uh, probably three-decade-old book now called The Celebration of Discipline is an absolute classic. If you want one a little more up-to-date, John Ortberg's book, 
um, the life you've always wanted is extremely good. Any of Dallas Willard's books, The Spirit of the Disciplines and um, The Divine Conspiracy, th those books also are, are excellent. What I want to start by, by doing this morning is telling you what the disciplines aren't, all right? Just in case there's some confusion. Um, the three things that the disciplines are not. Number one, I mentioned this last week, but it's always worth repeating because inherent in the disciplines is a danger, all right? And it's the danger that we use them to be a barometer of our spiritual maturity. And I want to just say right off the bat, spiritual disciplines are not a barometer of your spiritual maturity. God does not measure your spiritual performance on the basis and type and frequency of your practice of the disciplines. That's the way of the Pharisee. And ultimately, it, inevitably, it ends in externalism and, and legalism. We looked last week at the Pharisee who went up to pray. Remember, he looked over at the tax collector and he said, I thank God I'm not like this man. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all I give. And he's ranking his spiritual performance in terms of the external involvement and frequency of the disciplines. And God was wholly unimpressed. In that parable, it says, he prayed thus with himself. God was so disinterested that he just abandoned the man to his performances, and he wasn't even present in them. So we don't measure them, our, 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 the, the barometer. It's not, a bar, it's not a measure of our, spiritual, of our spirituality. I, I mentioned this last week, but it's worth repeating, practicing the spiritual disciplines, at least for me anyway, isn't an indication of spiritual strength, but it's an acknowledgement of my spiritual weakness. I don't practice the disciplines because I'm profoundly spiritual, but because I'm profoundly not, all right? I fast not because I'm strong, but because I'm prone to a lack of self-control, particularly when it comes to food. I give, not because I'm an especially generous person, but because I want to combat something of a miserly spirit that easily grips my heart. I seek silence because I prefer noise. Noise lets me hide from myself. It hides myself from myself. So I don't involve myself in the spiritual disciplines because I'm strong, but because I'm not, all right? If you want a measure of spiritual well-being and maturity, don't look at the type and frequencies of the person's practice of the disciplines. Look and assess whether they, or more particularly, whether you are growing in your love for God and your love for people. Because that's the measure of spiritual well-being. Not how much you fast, or how much you give, or how long you pray. The practice of the disciplines are not a barometer or measure of your spirituality. The second thing, and this needs to be said, is that the practice of the spiritual disciplines aren't necessarily unpleasant. Some of us have the impression, probably given to you by people like me, that the disciplines have to be hard and unpleasant if they're going to be real and effective. In, in essence, it's the old story, the worse it tastes, the better it is for you. Now, I'm, I'm not sure why we kind of grow up thinking God is going to say this, but we expect, or at least I do anyway, I expect God to say to me, eat locusts or worse still, Brussels sprouts, or eat nothing at all. You know, I, I expect God to say that to me. 
But when you actually look at the spiritual disciplines, you'll notice that they're not intended to be unpleasant. In fact, one of them, universally recognized as a discipline, is celebration. God isn't trying to make us all miserable. He is, without doubt, the happiest, most joyful being in the universe. Joy is his basic character. Built into the yearly cycle of Israel's life of faith were great seasons of celebration. God didn't say to them, I want you three times a year to gather and be as miserable as you possibly can. He said, I want you to get together three times a year and celebrate the feasts. We all, we all remember that Israel had these three great feasts. They, they were holy days. By the way, from which we get our English word, holiday. They were times of family gatherings, of eating, of drinking, of dancing, of camping in the streets, of general rejoicing. Now, what I'm about to say, I know is getting on thin ice, and, and I know it could be misunderstood as giving license to some people to whom, quite frankly, don't need license. But let me read a passage and comment briefly on it from Deuteronomy chapter 14. Verses 23 to 26, this is God talking to Israel about their yearly feasts, and he says this, make a feast before the Lord your God in the place which is to be marked out, where his name will be forever, the tenth part of your grain and your wine and your oil and the first births of your herd and your flocks, so that you may have the fear of the Lord your God in your hearts at all times. And if the way is so long that you're not able to take these things to the place marked out by the Lord your God for his name, when he's given you his blessings, because it is far away from you, let, then let these things be exchanged for money, and taking the money in your hand, go to the place marked out by the Lord your God for himself, and with the money get whatever you have a desire for, oxen, sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your soul's desire may be, and make a feast there before the Lord your God, and be glad, you and all your house. Now, God is saying that I want you as my people to punctuate your year with celebratory breaks, with these feasts. You're to go up to the place that I've marked out for you, and that place, by the way, was the city of Jerusalem. He said, I want you to go up to the big city and have a holiday. If they lived a long way away, one of the you know, the corners of the land, and, and the journey was long, and it was too far to carry their produce as provision, they were allowed to turn their provision into cash, and when they got to the big city, they could purchase what they desire, oxen, um, sheep, wine, or, or verse 26 mentions strong drink. Now listen, I, I don't want to upset people, but this isn't tea without milk. We, we aren't talking black coffee here. If, if, you, if you aren't sure, you go and get your Strong's Concordance and look it up. The Hebrew means an intoxicant. This is strong wine, or as the message translation says, a beer, or beer. Now, before I'm misunderstood, check back to verse 23, so that you may have the fear of the Lord your God in your heart at all times. God isn't saying to these people, go into town and get off your face. That's not what he's saying. He isn't suggesting that drunkenness is a potential spiritual discipline. Listen, all of you know the abuse of alcohol is a curse 
in our society and on our families, and the Bible forbids its abuse. But moderation and joy in all things is encouraged and not forbidden. God is not a cosmic killjoy who is storming across the battlements of heaven with a four by two with a nail in the end of it, looking for somebody who's having some fun so that he can bring it crashing down on the head saying, stop it. He is joyous and he wants us conformed to his image. And the disciplines, including actually the ones that at first might seem difficult, are ultimately designed for delight and not drudgery. The, the disciplines aren't intended to be just hard, hard work. And the harder it is, the better it is for you. Thirdly, wise training, including spiritual disciplines, always takes into account a person's season of life. Listen, people who are developing programs to get people physically fit, you know, the spiritual trainers of our world, always start by looking at the individual. They look at the person's life stage. They look at their health. They look at their individual circumstances. This isn't a one-size-fits-all deal. And it's exactly the same in the spiritual disciplines. Too often, we talk about spiritual disciplines without ever taking into account the fact that sometimes we are in a season of life where we may not be able to perform them as fully as perhaps we would like. We may need to take the idea of being transformed into the image of Christ into another place. Particularly mothers or parents of young children. You need to be told and lovingly taught that caring for those children is an act of service that is a spiritual discipline as effective in spiritual transformation as any of the other spiritual disciplines. Sometimes people live under this false idea that lovingly serving and caring for your children isn't as valuable and doesn't count as much as a vibrant quiet time. And it's not true. I've told this story before, and if you've heard it before, my apologies, but it seems to fit right about now. A few years ago, I came back from an overseas trip, and I awoke early the first morning, and I have to say that I was really anticipating. I was looking forward with a sense of anticipation to getting down and getting back into the rhythm of my devotional times. Devotional times, you know, your kind of rhythm gets really upset when you're in strange places and in odd time zones. And one of the joys that I have of coming back from a trip is just getting back into that, into that rhythm. And uh, I, was, I was really looking, f- I, maybe you think, you need to get a life done. But I was really looking forward to going down and just getting back into that rhythm. Uh, we had uh, our family staying with us at that time, and you know it was early in the morning, they were asleep, and I didn't anticipate that they'd be up for a while. So I'm making a cup of tea, looking forward to just sitting down, when I hear the pitter-patter of little feet coming down the hallway. And I, I just had this, these mixed emotions. I mean, number one, I really missed the grandkids while I was away. I was really looking forward to seeing them. We'd bought them a couple of little items, and they were excited. You know, can we play with you with this papa? And I'm, yeah, fine, you know, we'll do that tomorrow. And, and 
so there's the excitement of looking forward to playing with the kids and being with them, and, and yet, could it just not have been an hour later, you know? Because I wanted to get back into this rhythm. Anyway, Neve bursts through the door. Papa, can we play Cinderella? Because I'd bought her this little set with these figurines and Cinderella was, can we play Cinderella? I don't know if she knew something here, but she said, and you can be the ugly sister. <laughs> Some would say she's got a gift for casting, you know. And so I said, yeah, sure, sweetheart. You set them up, I'll make the cup of tea and I'll, I'll come. And as I'm making the cup of tea, I quietly said to the Lord, I guess the worship will just have to wait for a bit, Lord. And quick as a wink, he spoke back into my heart and he said these words, I will take what you are about to do as worship. And I was simultaneously stunned and thrilled. And I have to tell you, I played the role of the ugly sister <laughs> with such enthusiasm that at one point, Neve turned to me and said, Papa, if you don't settle down, I'm going to have to take your batteries out. <laughs> don't you just wish you could? I know that temptation has gone across your minds a couple of times. Listen. Your season of life is not a barrier for, and it should not be an excuse for, Christ being formed in you. you, you Christ can form his image in you, and he'll use all kinds of disciplines and situations, all right? Be wise and gentle with yourself. Be creative. God is. He will help you find those things that actually make you like his son. And sometimes for you parents, it will be lovingly caring for your little children when sometimes the guilt of I, I, I'm not reading my Bible as much as I'd like. I would like to be, have more prayer times. Those, those are okay. And I believe that he will take that as worship. By the way, just let me say, that's not an excuse for not doing it when you can. Okay? Because I had the intention of doing it. I wanted to do it. I, 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 I'll leave that with you. Okay. You say, well, Don, what would you say to a person who dismisses all this kind of talk of spiritual disciplines and just says, you know what, I'm a, I'm a follower of, I don't, I, don't, I don't do that stuff. That's for the super spiritual or those in full-time ministry. I'm not into that. Well, I would say this, the gospel calls us to follow him. That's the first words, follow me of the gospel. Follow me. And he calls his people to be disciples. Listen, you don't have to be a linguist to see the link between the word disciple and the word discipline. They are, they are one and they're cognate words. They come from the same idea. So to be a disciple is actually to be one who is in discipline. And so my question to the person who says, I don't do that stuff, would be, is there any other category of followers? Because I'm not aware of that from the scripture. If you aren't a disciple, then on what basis do you consider yourself to be his follower? We say, well, I, I, I'm a believer. Well, you know, the book of James says, so are the devils, and at least they tremble. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once commented, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. To offer the possibility of some category where people can be believers, but don't have to be disciplined and changed, is to offer what Bonhoeffer went on to call cheap grace. 
So remember those things about the disciplines, okay? Just three thoughts. They aren't the measure of your spirituality. Number two, can't remember, and I'm preaching the message. You go back over them, okay? I told you I needed a holiday. Oh, brilliant too. Okay, if I could read it, I would. I haven't got my glasses. Life is getting... <laughs> getting old sucks, eh? It's completely overrated. I'll leave you to read it as well. Um, I, I, I used to get a leadership magazine and... I have to be truthful, it was a great magazine, but the things I liked most about it were the cartoons. And uh, I had this cartoon, and these two people were standing outside the church, and outside the church was one of those big boards that announced the weekly sermon topic. And this week's sermon topic was, come and find out, meatheads. <laughs> and the two guys are looking at it, and one said to the other, you can always tell when pastor needs a holiday, eh? <laughs> so there you go. Last week, I briefly outlined the classic disciplines that traditionally and historically have been acknowledged as those kinds of activities that Jesus organized his life around so that he could remain at home in the fellowship of his father. Dallas Willard divided the disciplines into two categories, disciplines of abstinence. Those are the things that we stop doing or in New Testament language we put off, and they may be for a season. And then the disciplines of engagement, which are the things we do, or in biblical language, we put on. And sometimes those also can be for a season. In the disciplines of abstinence, he listed these things. Solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, and, and, uh, and sacrifice. Some writers will add one or two in, but that's kind of the core. In the disciplines of engagement, he included study, worship, prayer, celebration, service, giving, fellowship, confession and submission. In the time that we have left this morning, I, what I want to do is just take one discipline of abstinence and one of engagement and just throw a couple of seed thoughts out for you. I'm not going to unpack them in any, dis, in any detail, so we, just, we don't have the time for that. But as a discipline of engagement, could I encourage you to practice the discipline of prayer? All right? Listen, if we want to be Christ-like, then, then Prayer has to be, first and foremost, on our radar. Jesus' life was bathed in it. If we're going to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, prayer has to be something that's on our radar. So much so, by the way, that it was Jesus' life bathed in prayer that the disciples, who were good Jewish boys, very familiar with the habit of prayer and had, in fact, prayed all of their lives, saw something unusual in the quality and perhaps even the quantity of his prayer that caused them to ask, Lord, would you teach us to pray like you pray? It wasn't that they were unfamiliar with prayer. They'd just never seen prayer of that kind before. And they said, Lord, we would like to be able to do this. Mark chapter 1 verse 35 really stands as a commentary on Jesus' lifestyle. It says, in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out, departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. Apparently, the Greek has the idea of he was withdrawing and praying. It wasn't a one-off. It was part of his lifestyle, an ongoing practice. And there was something incredibly powerful about the place of prayer and transformation. James Houston says this, prayer is the way we shape our inward life to imitate the life of Christ. Richard Foster just simply says this, to pray is to change. 
Prayer is the central avenue that God uses to transform us. Listen, I am incredibly aware of the struggle that most of us have with this discipline of prayer, or perhaps more accurately, the, the lack of it in our lives. If, if you're like me, there, there have been times when I've been struggling with my prayer life, and what I've done is taken a book or two and turned to the masters of on the subject and and practice of prayer in order to try and get inspired. So I I read the biography of a man they termed praying Hyde, John Hyde. And I read how he prayed so passionately that apparently his heart moved within his chest cavity. And I felt totally condemned. I, you know, I don't know how those things affect you, but I, you know, I have to confess, I've fallen asleep praying in every conceivable position. And, and sometimes the only thing that moved in me was my head. As I, as I and you know, John Hyde's heart's moving and my head's dropping. So I put John Hyde aside, I picked up David Brainard's journal. Here's a young man who prayed for hours, days, sometimes weeks, sometimes so long that he melted the snow that he was kneeling on. I didn't get inspired. I couldn't get past the idea that this guy's praying in the snow. It's like, why was he praying in the snow? Was his wife angry with him and did she shut him out? And he's he's praying in the snow. I find out that he's only about 28 years old. He's not married, so it's not his wife. I said, did his mother not like him? Why is he, why is he praying in the snow? You think, you know, you'd get inspired and go out and at least on a, I would, I would go out on a summer's morning and pray on the grass, you know, but praying in the snow. I, 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 he died of pneumonia at age 29. I'm thinking, go figure. I didn't get inspired. I couldn't get past the snow. So I put that book down. I read about Reese Howes moving and influencing national and international events with his prayers. I felt more akin to Adrian Plass, who couldn't move a paperclip on his desk by faith. Do you remember that story? Anybody read Adrian Plass? If you want to celebrate, read Adrian Plass, okay? He tells about the story that he tried by faith to move a paperclip on his desk, and it, he couldn't. I identify with Adrian Plass rather than Reese Howes. Now, you're probably thinking, you, you really do need a holiday. Take a long one. You know, the problem with the stories that you read about those, and I'm only kidding in some respects, they are deeply inspiring, but we always read where these guys finished up, but not where they always started. I, I would read them and be totally buried. Just a word of advice with regard to prayer. It's not exactly profound. It's just start. Start. Resolve to begin. Create a place. Make a time. Persist in the practice. You know, sometimes I hear people saying, I pray on the move throughout my day. I pray arrow prayers when they're needed. Listen, that might work for you, but my experience is that if you don't pray somewhere, you're probably not likely to pray anywhere, really. Find somewhere to pray. Arrow prayers are fine as a supplement, but in my life anyway, they fail as a substitute. Like most things, you learn by doing. Take your stumbling efforts into God's presence and ask him to teach you. Sometimes I hear people, oh, again, that's fine for you. I don't live in a monastery, Dom, and I'm not full-time like you. 
And I can't just carve out great portions of time for prayer. Listen, I don't live in a monastery either, and I haven't always been full-time. As a university student, I found a place on our campus where nobody pretty much ever went, and between, between lectures, when I was able, I went there rather than the cafeteria. When I was a school teacher, I found a church nearby my school that kept its doors open during the day for people to pop in and just have some silence and solitude. And I used to take my lunch over there and just eat it there. I'm sure the constant pile of crumbs was a, a, a mystery to the cleaner. It's like every, every, what is it with the crumbs in this seat? I turned my car into a monastery. And and I'm not saying those things to make you feel like you're in the presence of another prayer warrior. You know, John, David, and Reese move over. Don is joining the Holy Trinity. Because I am nothing of the sort. I've struggled as much with prayer and guilt over my prayer life as any of you have done. You know, the thing that I did, though, is I simply resolved to keep on going, to keep on praying, to keep on trying. Please don't tell me that you don't have time to pray as you turn away to check or update your Facebook page for the seventh time that day. Okay? Please don't tell me you don't have time. If you must, tell God what you had for breakfast. The rest of the world doesn't care. (laughs) Come and find out, meatheads. Let me finish with a couple of thoughts on the discipline of abstinence. Uh, Disciplines often seem to function in pairs, prayer and fasting, service and secrecy, solitude and silence. Let me throw, as we finish, a couple of random thoughts at you on the subject of solitude and silence. The world we live in is one of constant noise, rush and busyness. We get up in the morning, woken often by a radio alarm. We hurriedly catch the TV news as we dress for work. We listen to the radio as we drive for work. We put on our iPod and listen to music as we cycle or run. We talk with our colleagues. We repeat the whole process as we come home from work, and we fall exhausted into bed, our heads filled with sound. It seems that we as a people have an aversion to quiet and an uneasiness with being unhurried, and alone. You look at the life of Jesus, if you want to be in the dust of your rabbi, it's marked with the practice of solitude and silence. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, he goes out led by the Spirit into the desert for an extended period. Matthew 14, 23, he went up in the mountains by himself. Luke 4, 42, he departed and went into a desert place. He was withdrawing and praying, the Bible says. Without similar times, without times of solitude and silence, we can end up being very hurried, shallowed people. I I actually think we end up addicted to hurried, noisy lives because somehow it makes us feel important and it enables us to avoid ourselves. We don't have to come face to face with ourselves. So our lives are busy. Carl Jung, the psychologist, once said, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Jim Elliot, the missionary, who, the missionary martyr, said, the devil has made it his business to monopolize three elements, noise, hurry, and crowds. I, I completely understand that we have seasons of busyness. But can I suggest to you that constant hurry and noise isn't just about disordered schedules. It actually can betray a disordered heart. 
And I would suggest to you that you work and take times where you can just be quiet and you can be alone. Start small. Again, remember your season of life. For those of you who are parents of small children, those times are going to be few and far between. You can't even get in the bathroom without them knocking on the door, usually. I think I've told you this story, but Susanna Wesley, who had, I think, something like 16 or 17 children, so don't tell me you're busy with three, as busy as you are, used to go into the kitchen, sit down on her chair, and pull her apron up over her head. And when she did that, not one of those 18 children bothered her, because it wasn't worth their life to do it then. And she would just take a moment in the midst of that solitude as... (laughs) good as it could be, and silence to just wait on the Lord. Now, she didn't spend hours under that apron. She just took small snippets. And sometimes we can take small snippets to cultivate the spirit of Mary in a a Martha-like world. Okay? Just some thoughts. Psalm 62, verse 1 and verse 5 says, For God alone my soul wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Cultivate times. It doesn't have to be long. Sometimes when I've um, been away speaking, usually on the way, if I'm, this is if I'm by myself, usually on the way I, I pray. On the way home, what I'll often do is just drive absolutely silently. And it might be, you know, an hour. It depends where I've gone. But sometimes I'll just, I'll be absolutely quiet on the way home. I won't say anything. I won't pray. I won't sing. I won't turn the radio on. I just, just drive quietly. Co- s- grab snippets out of your day. Cultivate snippets of silence and solitude. And then see if it's not possible, given the season of your life, to grab a little more in other places. I don't say, I think it was Bonhoeffer who said, if you love silence, be afraid of it. Seek community. If you love noise and people, um, seek solitude. So sometimes you can talk about a spiritual discipline, those people who actually are off that edge, love it, and come on, come on, they actually need to be pulled back. The people that are out here are the ones that need that message. And I'm, I'm, I'm just leaving that thought with you this morning. The goal is Christ-likeness. The Holy Spirit is relentless and passionate in his pursuit of us to make us like Jesus. And if you give, give your life to him, in, in terms of disciplines and, and, and other things that we've talked about, he will fashion that in you. That's his relentless pursuit. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.